Today we have someone on that I'm very fascinated with. I was reading a few things about on her website, and I thought that's really a, an amazing way of looking at healthcare. Because you know, if you've been following my podcasts, you know I'm a chiropractor, but I'm fascinated with how the mind controls the body, and the body looks into the mind, and the fact we ever separated them. What a big mistake that was! Thousands of if maybe a thousand years ago, I'm not even sure. I've tried to get an, an answer to that because I know in Chinese medicine, they never really separated them. And in Western medicine, they did. And from my understanding, it had a lot to do with the church and uh, religious figures wanting sort of the mind and the spirit. And the scientists was allowed to have the body. And they just said, well, you get that, we get this. And in that, um, they went different directions. And of course, with some advents of you know, more modern psychology, maybe say Sigmund Freud. I don't know if that's considered modern or not, but um, some of the work he's done, we sort of started bridging gaps a little bit. And then in my work, I've always been fascinated with the idea that if somebody blushes, it's because they're embarrassed. So they have an emotion and they automatically have a skin color change, right? Their, their blood vessels in their cheeks, and maybe their whole face dilate and their face turns red. So if you don't think that your emotions are affecting your body, <clears throat> or you may think it does, but you don't realize how deeply that's happening, um, take a look at that. That's something obvious on the outside of the body. What about your liver and kidneys and intestine? All the other parts of your body that may or may not be turned on, turned off, um, regulated differently with the uptake of different hormones, things like cortisol, a lot of us know about stress-related hormones. Um, but today we have on the show, Kelsey Bennett. She is a clinical social work therapist and recently a doctor of that. So this is really exciting. She's um, building her career and building her knowledge base and she's on the show today. Welcome, Kelsey. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Like I said earlier, I looked at your, your website, some of the things you had to say. One of the things that uh, got to me, um, and I've told many people this, I had a patient that had a tattoo in, I think it was in Chinese writing, and it said something, and I'm like, what does that mean? And she said, there's beauty in the broken. And I thought, I don't have any tattoos, I'm not really from that, you know, sort of era. And uh, I thought, but if I got one, I think I might say something like that, because it's always fascinated me when somebody appears to be kind of perfect, they kind of bore me. And when someone has different things about them that are odd, I've always thought that was more interesting. So um, tell us a little bit about some of, the, some of the reasons you got into what you do. I got into what I do because of migraine headaches. I was off to do very mechanical things. I always loved cars and fixing things and got terrible headaches, went to a chiropractor, got amazing results and thought, wow, it's a hands-on job fixing the frame of a body and affecting the neurology of the body. And that was enough to draw me in. What what drew you into what you do? So um, very similar to kind of, I think uh, you. I was on a different path. I went into my um, undergrad wanting to be a neurosurgeon. So I've always loved the brain. Um, my aunt, uh, she was a PT in the area, Dr. Susan Bennett. She um, kind of got me very interested in the brain early on. So that was originally okay. the path I wanted to go through. But um, then some just like some stuff happened in my life, and I was like, I don't know how to deal with this. This is not concrete, right? This is not black and white. Um, and I ended up kind of moving into more of the field of psychology to figure it out. And I ended up meeting a great therapist as well, um, who kind of really helped me see the world totally different. And so with that kind of interest in the neurophysiology as well as psychology, I did start into behavioral neuroscience. So I was going to do some research in behavioral neuroscience. I was interested in kind of that blend um, of the two. Uh, however, one day uh, when I was sitting at the lab bench, um, one of my, uh, one of the other students came and sat kind of next to me and just started like, telling me about all our problems. And I was like, man, I wish there was a job where I could just listen to people and help them through their problems. And I was like, oh, there, there is um, a job like there that. Is. Yeah, I uh, ended up going into uh, changing and going to my master's in social work um, and then ended up uh, going for my doctorate as well. That's fantastic. Well, I think it's, it's fun to discover your gifts and your interests early in life. Some people struggle in that arena. Some people, they're just sort of born, pop out and say, hey, I know what I want to do. I had two friends of mine that were like that. And the rest of my friends are more like me that were kind of open to 
a lot of different career choices. And then, you know, what are you really passionate about? What do you want to do? I like fixing broken stuff. I always have. The first new car I bought, I was disappointed because I couldn't really fix it or make it better. It was already brand new and good. It's kind of a strange feeling. So um, in my practice, you know, when someone comes in and says, I have a problem, it's exciting to me. It's like, all right, you got a problem. This is uh, what I do, right? And I, you sound like you do. You, you kind of work the same way. Um, one of the things that always fascinated me was when I first studied Freud's work. Uh, I thought, wow, this is incredibly bizarre. The, some of the different, the id ego, super ego, self-esteem, depression. He has so many big words that we use every day. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they came from Freud. He invented those words. And there's sort of a, I know, a rejection of Freud in a lot of ways and in more modern thinking, maybe because he's kind of dark and what he focused on was pretty negative and people don't want to really dig into that because some of that's maybe just evolutionarily accurate and it's just how it goes. But I never like to throw out the any one entire person just because they've made a couple of mistakes or we've researched to revolve beyond their work. Um, I, so I, I'm curious as to your opinion when you look at his work and I think anybody has to study his work if you're going to get into the mind, because in my opinion, I think he's extremely important, but let's keep going. You know, I don't think um, the founder of chiropractic studied one technique and was amazing at it. And, you know, sooner or later passed away and people took what he did and kept going. And you can go too far. You can be, you can find a technique that's absolute garbage, but there's so many techniques that are amazing in chiropractic and they grew out of his fundamental work. Do you think that a lot of stuff grows out of the fundamental work of Freud and in your work, what do you think of his work? So I, I definitely agree with you in terms of what you're saying about um, it's a foundational piece. Um, and I do think a lot of what, especially in his, I, I kind of like his earlier work better. Uh, you were mentioning earlier about like the disconnect between the mind um, and the body. And he was one of the people who was kind of believing that some of these things might originate in the mind versus the brain. So he did kind of separate those two, but I, I appreciate his perspective on the fact that it's not like a biological thing that might be like wrong. It's something that we have learned, adapted, constructed, and let's look at that a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So I definitely appreciate that. And um, you mentioned the it ego, super ego, um, 100%. Um, that is something that I think grew into. It's actually an intervention that's becoming much more popular recently. And I absolutely understand why I have implemented it in my practice as well. And that's internal family systems work by Richard Schwartz. Um, so this is the idea that there are different kind of parts of the self and some that are, you know, protector parts, some that are more exile parts that hold a lot of, you know, trauma and um, maybe some of the dark stuff that you were talking about earlier that it, you know, would not allow us to function in everyday society if it was always present, right? So necessarily our brain needed to protect us and push those things out of the picture so that we could survive. Um, you know, as you know, I'm sure the body, the brain, it adapts to help us survive and keep going. Um, and it doesn't always register when, you know, we're safe. So I think that kind of was built on some of his work um, over time. And there's also the concept that I implement and I, I share with all my patients. I, I'm big on psychoeducation and making sure my patients understand what I'm doing, why we're doing it. Um, and I'm sure there's some people that don't care as much. Um, a lot of the people who work with me, they're the kind of people who do really want to understand. So those are kind of my best fit patients. Um, but it's the idea of structural dissociation. So that's the idea that within your psyche, there are different ego states. So not necessarily just the id, ego, super ego, but these different parts of ourselves or parts of our psyche that might be more or less integrated. And if you can see the mind kind of on a bit of a, um, like a not separated as much as maybe sometimes the DSM has it be, but more on kind of a grayscale, you can see the levels of maybe structural dissociation within one's mind that might, you know, for example, PTSD, that's you're switching from one state into another and then back, right? There's one kind of big separation where the trauma is held here and you're here and maybe a little bit further where you're into complex trauma, which is where I primarily work. Um, my population suffers from complex trauma, 
Uh, so I'm kind of in that secondary dissociation, it's called. And that's where other things might be. You know, if someone has borderline personality disorder or um, some other, uh, I hate the word disorder, but we'll use it here for the sake of simplicity, um, disorder where there's a lot of, um, you know, switching of emotional states quickly, or there's just seems to be a separation between the sense of self I like to see it more on that scale. And I think, you know, we can pull back to Freud on a little bit of that as well, where he started with some of those topics um, and the defense mechanisms as well. We can see that in some of those protector parts. But um, yeah, I, I would say a lot has been built on since then, but I'm glad that he did the work that he did. You mentioned complex trauma. You said most of your clients have complex trauma. Define that real quickly for me. How, what's, how, does, how does it differ from non-complex, let's say? Love that question. Um, so simple PTSD is kind of, um, you know, you had one instant or it was one particular, you know, thing that really led you to have a trigger. So you might um, like have a car accident, right? And so now you're driving your car, that is your trigger and you might, you know, have some symptoms associated with that. Complex trauma is more prolonged, sustained trauma over time. So a lot of this, we're looking at relational trauma early on in life or narcissistic abuse later on. So it just has, it's more insidious and it has a six symptom clusters versus just a three with PTSD. And it's not in the DSM, it's in the ICD, which the rest of the world uses, but it's not in the DSM. So that is part of, of what I want to hopefully help integrate into the DSM also and say like, hey, there is a big difference between these two conditions, even though um, they just released the DSM TR and I, I don't love their explanations as to why complex trauma is not in there. Um, but I understand for now that it's something that practitioners hopefully will keep advocating for. Yeah, I can imagine that that's interesting because I have worked with patients that I guess would would fall into that complex trauma. There's so many things that have gone wrong in their lives for so long. It's layers of dysfunction and abuse versus the person who has one massive thing that, you know, and usually I find the person that has the one massive thing, whether it's physical or emotional or the mix, it's, it's so much simpler because even if it's gigantic, the rest of their life has been pretty functional. So they have sort of a decent foundation usually, unless it happens for early, obviously. Um, and you can, they can draw from that stability that they once had, even though they went through something horrifying, where the other individual, they never had, it appeared to never have a nice foundation uh, to be able to rely on. And so they're really just, you know, disjointed on many levels. I have patients that have, you know, lower back problems and pelvic issues, and a lot of it comes from sexual abuse. And I have to approach that topic pretty gently, obviously, because, you know, I want to be I, my, one of my favorite sayings to get out of jail. You got to know you're in jail. Right. So I like to tell people, here's the prison you've found yourself in. And some of that is this. And so often I know one of my the toughest word and one of the things I try to get patients to do to let go of their physical tension is forgiveness. And it's you know, I've almost been kicked in the teeth for you know mentioning that to patients because they really aren't ready to forgive because they don't think that's part of the game. They don't think that's acceptable. You know, they, they still want to dig in and, and uh, be miserable and, you know, continue to have some kind of harsh relationship uh, with the individual, if it's a person, let's say, that has wronged them. And I, you know, I try to get across to that. I think as, as a chiropractor, whether you realize that or not, you know, I'm, I, I really, I think I share a lot in common with psychologists, bartenders, and hairdressers, I always say, right? Because I'm with a patient for an amount of time and we start talking about life and our problems. I'm, I'm pretty personal with my patients. They know I, I don't really hide much from them. Um, I just can't do it any other way. You know, this idea of a professional boundary, certainly in certain areas, I draw a very sharp line there. But when it comes to my personal life, like my children and my workout schedule and my, you know, uh, physical ailments and problems, I share them openly because this is a person I'm talking to, you know, and I find it difficult to be this detached, you know, clinician. I, I, I really, I can't operate that way as successfully. So I, I guess I risk a little bit of people knowing more about me than maybe uh, they should. I, it has never been a problem. So I just keep rolling that way. But I think it's, uh, 
I, I, I appreciate your definition of the two because I never thought about just saying complex or non-complex. I just thought, well, this person's got a load of stuff and this person has one big problem, you know, but it's nice that somebody's defining that and working with it. So you take on the hard work, in other words, if you do complex trauma, you said that's your, most of your clients are that way. Yeah, um, I'm very similar to you. I, you know, the more complex, the more I am ready to like get into it. Um, I love that work. Uh, you know, well, of course I'm happy to see people with, you know, anxiety, but you know, I can do that. It's just, you know, a couple of weeks then, okay. Um, I really like to dig in. And when I, you know, I do initial consultations with people so they know it's a good fit before we, you know, commit to this. Yeah. Um, and I tell them like, if you want, we can always just do the coping skills stuff and then you can decide if you want to continue. But typically, you know, we're going to dig in and get to the root of the problem and, you know, go in there and pull it out and it's going to be tough. And I, I, you know, I tell them too, it's, I will work just as hard as you do. Um, you know, so I'm here with you in it and I respect what they're doing. So. Yeah. It's great when someone works as hard as you do and you work as hard as they do. Uh, everyone has patients that you're working harder than they are. And a lot of times they're the first one to bring it up. You know, I'm usually a little more passionate about people getting healthy than they are. And unless they're in extreme pain, then of course that they, that'll supersede their, their passion for being out of pain is, is better than mine. But if you, if I have a patient that says, oh, I just got diagnosed with diabetes, you're a natural health guy. You know, uh, what do you think of that? You know, I'm thinking, I think a lot about that because it's in my gene pool, but I'm doing great, but I do a lot to be great at that. I know that's probably a genetic weakness. So I take that head on. So here's all my 55 ideas. If you can stand to listen to it and put up with what I'm about to tell you, it's not going to be a little bit of work, right? But hey, that's the way it goes. In, in one of the things also in therapy, I remember studying, I think it was young and he had said, it was client-centered therapy, I think it was called, right? Versus uh, Freud's approach. Uh, and that he just repeated back to people. I remember laughing when I was studying it. I love my psych classes. And uh, this one was, uh, he repeated back to people and clean this up for me. I'm just going to give it to you how I know it. He repeated back to people what they said and let them do most of the talking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a pretty chatty person. So for me, I got to learn to stop talking a lot in my, my uh, consultations with patients and my interactions and treatments with patients. And I know that, and I think I've mastered that, I hope. So in, in, in your therapeutic sessions, how much are you listening and how much are you talking? I will, I'm going to say this a lot. <laughs> it depends on the patient. Um, I, I actually am opposite of you. I find myself with a natural pr proclivity to kind of be more observational and listen first um, mm -hmm. more. So I, I have to sometimes, and you, you, uh, there's a concept called attunement. Um, so you attune with the patient kind of to see where they're at. And if you are in a good, and this is why therapist self-care is so important, right? Um, if you are able to connect with your emotions, then you can kind of be centered and then be there with them a little bit better and kind of figure out where they're at, what they need, what they're thinking. And if you can get to that space, you can really figure out, okay, am I needing to talk a little more, listen a little more, guide a little more, shift my, you know, tone, body language a little bit more. And um, so I do have patients who they are so used to not sub so subjugating, so pushing their needs aside, not stating what they need to avoid some sort of consequence, whether it's abandonment or rejection or, you know, anything. Um, that they have not had a lot of practice putting their thoughts, feelings into words and just doing so elicits anxiety. So sometimes I will start by, you know, naming things and saying things that they might be wanting to say, kind of figure out and they're like, yes, that's it. Or no, that's not it. And that will kind of help to evoke the conversation. And over time they'll get better. And I just need to then step back and give them space to find the words a little bit better. And over time, you know, we get to have much better dialogue because of that kind of back and forth. Um, so it really starts with that attunement process and figuring out where they're at. Um, and that's where, you know, the Jungian person centered, you start where the client is at. Um, you don't start where you wanna be. It's okay, let me get down here with you so that, you know, we can kind of see the outcome together, but I gotta start where you are. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the way to go. I, I, I do that in my sessions as well with patients. I have people that 
just want to tell me what's going on. And I think, okay, it's all, it's all ears now. And I just stop talking and I let them go. And you can see the relief they have by the end. You know, I remember one time I, a patient said, I can't believe how much time you spent with me. And I really didn't spend that much time, but the time I spent was me not talking. So they were able to get the story out. The time I have to intercede and you probably have to do the same thing is to, you know, get people to talk about the important things and get them off a tangents that might not be, you know, that valuable to the therapeutic session. You know, I, I, I do my best with that. Um, that is harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the biggest questions I want to ask you, and it's, I have a book called Healers on Healing. And if you've never read it, it's really cool. It's taken each healer. Have you read that by any chance? I don't know, but I'll it's, it's been around a while. It's a really cool book. It's taken the, the sort of the head clinician or doctor or practitioner of any of the big healing techniques out there, like the, the most fundamental and biggest people in chiropractic um, and in, in every profession in the day. It was probably written maybe 20 years ago. And it's great, though, because it, they basically ask him the same question, you know, what makes people heal? What gets people to heal? What encourages people to heal? What's the, what's the thing? And each of them go into um, a, either a philosophical or a very almost mathematical uh, clinical explanation of what it takes to get somebody to go from, you know, someone who's you know, healing or not. It, I'm going to ask you that same question. Like, what does it take to get someone to heal? I know it's a massive open-ended question, but, but it gives you a long leeway to say what you want to say. So, it, when you look at somebody, you think, okay, how do I get this person to heal? So first step is always, and I come from obviously the more trauma background, um, but first step is uh, safety. Um, they need to feel safe. And sometimes, you know, with trauma, I'm working with people who through discussion, um, we come to discuss the idea that they may have never, ever actually felt safe in their life. And so they don't even know what that looks like. So first it's kind of defining that. And that's not just physical, it's emotional safety. And um, if you're familiar, excuse me, with Maslow's hierarchy, um, it's kind of Maslow's hierarchy needs. So you got the physiological, you know, needs at the bottom and then after this safety. And I, you know, pull that out and I share it with patients and, um, you know, I'm like, we're here and we will get to the other steps, but we gotta, you know, kind of scale it down and just make sure you feel safe. So part of that is, um, defining it, creating it based on their definition, um, and then kind of going from there. Um, and that is internal and external and how to feel safe even in unsafe environments and how to set boundaries and advocate and um, you know all these different skill sets to create safety. Uh, and you're not always gonna have you know the optimal environment, but um, a big piece of that is developing trust, I think, with yourself that no matter what, you are not going to, you know, subject yourself to persistent unsafe situations because then that becomes a self-betrayal and then you lose trust and then you really, you can't find the safety again. I think of some people I know that do that, they put themselves in unsafe situations all the time. It's almost like they're addicted to their own adrenaline, like they don't feel alive unless they're doing something kind of dangerous and whether that be, you know, a physical act or putting themselves in an emotionally dangerous situation. I always found that fascinating because it, it's like they really do need the opposite. You know, why are they continuing to go into these, I guess it's a pattern of unsafe behaviors and, you know, but getting somebody to feel safe in a one-on-one -on -one consultation with you, I, I would think what comes to mind for me is that privacy would be, you know, if I was, if I, if I think of myself, when do I feel safe? I love talking to people that I know are a vault, right? Now you're, you're bound by clinical laws and, and regulations to, you know, keep what they say in that, in, unless there's a very unusual circumstances. And so am I, doctor, you know, patient, doctor, client privilege type of thing. But in, in, in the regular world, you know, I have a few friends that are like vaults, you know, you tell them things and they're never telling anybody. And then there are people that I can't talk to. I can't tell them uh, more private kind of things that I don't want advertised because they can't do it. They're just gossipy or whatever. So I get what you're saying about that. I would think in a clinical setting, I would just have to believe that I would feel safe telling this person something personally. Um, yeah. So what, what's the next step after they feel safe? 
what do you have to do to get somebody to, to, to get the healing equation going? So I think in general, the next step is kind of what you said um, with your uh, clients as well. Like people don't want to see, okay, what is actually going on here? Like what's the actual problem here? Um, Cause that's the thing they're most trying to avoid, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, so it's actually starting to move toward acceptance. Um, and acceptance does not mean you like it. It doesn't mean you don't want to change it. It's just saying right now in this current moment, this is reality, right? Mm -hmm. Once we know where we're at, then we can get where we want to go. But if I'm pretending I'm somewhere else, then we're going to never get to where we actually want to be because we're not accepting where we're at, you know? So um, truth in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That takes, you know, that takes time and that takes uncovering things. And sometimes the, you know, I have work as patients as I'm sure you do too, you notice patterns, you know, you can kind of figure out after like 10 minutes, okay, this is probably what's going on 15 layers. Um, you know, getting buy-in, getting trust, um, getting there, you know, we use IFS language protector parts to step aside to even get to a place where they can look at that. You know, that's partly developing trust. Um, and that, that, you know, it's part of safety. Um, you mentioned a vault and I wonder if um, that's coming from Brené Brown's Braving Trust. No, it's not. Oh, that sounds, okay. I could probably read it though because I love the term, but she got, <laughs> um, she got into the idea of a vault. There's this idea of braving trust. So uh, like what you need to develop trust in relationships. And I kind of keep that in the back of my mind whenever I'm trying to develop this trust with clients so we can actually you know, move into some of that acceptance and like, hey, maybe this is actually what's going on. Um, I, off the top of my head, I'm struggling to remember all of them, but it's like boundaries, um, reliability, um, I think acknowledgement, um, vault being one of them, integrity. Um, you know, so these, these things that you need to have in relationships to really develop trust. And, you know, that's internal and external. That's, do you set boundaries with yourself, right? A lot of people have, and I apologize if I'm tangenting a little bit, but a lot of people don't have a good relationship with boundaries. Um, and that tends to start when they're young, right? So are, are boundaries seen as a punishment or are they seen as an act of love, right? So your parent stops you from running across the street and says, hey, you can't do that because they love you, right? But for some people, like they were developed in a very rigid household where, um, you know, they put one toe out of line, they're punished for it. So that's seen as bad or in an environment where they had no boundaries, right? So now it feels like, how dare you say that to me? Absolutely not. And they get might get defensive and perceive a boundary as criticism. So it, this idea of developing trust um, within the self and uh, with other people as well. Yeah, I find what like part of when I trust somebody and they tell me something that um, is painful and true, for example, you know, you really, I have a friend of mine that's just known for dishing out the truth and he's quite comedic, thank God, but he can't hold back what he sees and when the elephant's in the room, he's going to point it out. Yeah. And people really love that about him. And he has the he has a special sort of gift and ability to actually do that. And I borrow that gift as much as I can from him. I have a little bit of it, but he has it all the way down to the core of him. Uh, but I really think it's so important that once I get somebody's trust or they, uh, they or I trust them or they trust me to be able to be more truthful, I love someone that can take it. You know, it's it's difficult when you get someone that's just every time you try to tell them something truthful because of their maybe complex trauma, they don't want to hear it or they get mad at you. You know, when someone tells me something uncomfortable that I realize, wow, that's true. I kind of laugh inside. I have a decent sense of humor, thank God. And I'll think, yeah, I am doing that. And that's pretty ridiculous. And I'll try to clean it up. Because, you know, and especially, it, it, and you always got to consider the source. Is this person trying to knock me down? Do you do it in front of a bunch of people? Is this what they constantly do? Or is this a person that's doing this out of some kind of compassion for you? Because they're like, hey, this seems like a good guy, but somebody should tell him that, you know, some of the stuff he's doing is, you know, a little off base. Um, that's, you know, I try to do that with my patients. I try to say, you know, 
my, my message to my patients is I absolutely love you. And I don't say that out loud in that way, but I want them to hear. I actually I do say that to some people, but I can't say that to everybody. They can't handle it. But um, I, I want them to know that and then be able to say, hey, here's what's going on with you, right? I have, I have a patient, she's probably 350 pounds and she keeps asking me why her knees hurt. And I've told her, well, there's a lot of weight bearing on your knees and uh, your knees are not designed for that. And she still seemed to not be hearing it. And I had to keep using further and further kind of cutting analogies to be able to get it down to what it really is. And then she finally go, you can see her nodding into some kind of like, all right, I guess I will hear that. I mean, she has to know that that's a major factor. It's not that complicated of an idea, but you can really tell there was an amount of denial. And then when I kept getting more and more cutting and more and more sort of tr plain truth with her, she let it go. And she said, okay, uh, I get it, you know, and, and then, and it helped. So for me, it's, it's love and then followed by truth. And because I think that I am, you can, it would make somebody feel safe if you really believe this person really cares for you and really wants the best for you. And then just telling you something painful, you know, that that's, that's a bit of a, a, a balancing act. Do you find yourself in situations like that where you're about to say something like, Hey, this, I got to drop a truth bomb on this person. Um, I think, should I do it or shouldn't I, or how should I put it? How are you in that arena? Yeah. I mean, I have to do that all, all the time. Right. Um, and there's, um, it was social work and, uh, shout out to UB. They're wonderful with this. Um, really sure everyone who goes to the program understands the principle of trauma informed care. And I feel like, um, that's a big part of, you know, how many years at UB now for me? Like, uh, it's so in my practice, um, it's, you know, trustworthiness, um, you know, it's not being, I'm not sitting there as the expert. I'm, you know, listening to you. I'm here with you. I'm um, collaboration, you know, it's trustworthiness, reliability. So there's just these pieces where if you can make people see that like we're on the same team here um, and I'm, I'm asking you, like, I think this is going on. What do you think? Um, this is, I come to the table. What do you think? Um, how do you feel about that? You know, um, maybe that, maybe this, like, let's, let's chat about it. I'm not sitting here saying this is what's happening. Right. Um, because I, I couldn't in good conscience do that, but I come with a certain skill set, and they come with a certain skill set, and we can collaborate on that. Um, and I will say too, it's sometimes, especially with, you know, complex trauma, there is a piece to people can't, um, can't tolerate love, affection, kindness, right? It's like, nope, that's too much. Um, I mm -hmm. don't like that. So we might need to keep it more facts-based originally, mm -hmm. develop that, mm -hmm. but the tolerance yep. for that. Um, and there was something else you were saying about, I'm trying to remember now, um, creating some of that safety and dropping those truth bombs from a place of love. Um, and I, I try to embody kind of like the transparency, which is another one of those principles is if I can be totally comfortable in myself and transparent, just exactly what I'm thinking, what's going on, then that sets the stage hopefully to take like some of the onus off of everything. Um, and they can take it or leave it, you know, and I leave that with them. They can take it. Or, I'm not forcing you to do anything here. You have choice about whether you want to pick this up or not. And that's fine. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're showing some real humility in, in saying to somebody, this, you know, what do you think of this? This is what I'm seeing. In other words, I am not telling you, I am not the word of God coming down saying, here's your problem, listen to me. You're like, here's what I'm seeing. And I like that because I do the same thing. You know, someone will say, well, you know, why is my back hurt? And I said, but I think what I'm seeing is, or I think what's happening is, and I let them tell me, no, that's not happening. And I'm like, okay cool. I, it just seems like it is. Well, why don't you think it is? And then they'll tell me, I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, that's why. And, you know, I am wrong in that assumption, but I'm glad we brought it up. So then this is what's happening then. Most likely, if it's not that, it's got to be this. And, and instead of saying, I know what it is, you know, I'm, I've been practicing forever and I know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I feel like saying that sometimes, but a lot of times a person then just tells me, you know, well, here's what's happening. I'm like, okay, good. Now we know. 
right? So it, 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 I, I try not to get confrontational ever with patients, but at the same time, people want to be led oftentimes. Some people just want to talk about it. So like we said earlier, how much talking, how much listening, I, I think that's a, with me, it's probably, I, I, with practice and over time, I think I'm becoming better at realizing, okay, this person needs a lot of talking. I better, cause they're not saying anything for one thing, or I need to dig out of them what's going on. You know, I mean, I just see a difference in between male and female patients, you know, um, to get a fact out of a 19 year old boy about his back is digging and digging and nagging and pestering and asking the question 38 different ways to get that same information out of a 75 year old woman. It's not a problem. You know, I, she just say hi and then here you go. And then I might, I'm wearing out my pen, writing down all, all the things she's telling me. And, the, and both of those are challenging. One is how do I decipher what's important from somebody telling me mounds and mounds and mounds of data from the history of her life. And how do I get this person to tell me what's really going on? And I see that as a male female thing often. Um, so I read somewhere that a woman speaks 7,000 more words a day than a man. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's both. And then I'm not saying one is better than the other. One is a better idea than the other. Uh, both of them have their, their place. And, uh, you know, I, I have to get, I have to get my patients mainly to tell me just the facts, ma'am, as they used to say, right. Uh, that kind of thing, because you want to be able to get to the, the crucial part and, and make the, and make make the visit time, time worthy, right? In, in the time you have. Are, are your visits about an hour long? Is that classically how you work with patients? Yeah, it's technically 55 minutes, but usually we go for the full hour. Mm -hmm. Just give myself some buffer time. <laughs> One of the things that a lot of people talk about is sort of coaching life coaches and inspirational speakers, motivational speakers. Do you find yourself as a life coach? Would you put that category in? What do you think of that idea? I do not see myself that way. Um, I have a friend, a colleague, Maureen Kemeny, um, which knows uh, her as well. And um, she and I have talked about this and life coaches are a bit more, um, from my understanding, don't dig into the past to kind of see, you know, the ideology of some of these things and like process this stuff. It's more, okay, where do we go from here? So right. I do plan future planning type stuff, um, but it's more integrated into um, digging up and healing, you know, the wounds, I guess, from the past. Um, so no one is usually coming to me simply to say, um, okay, I want to figure out what I want to do as a career. Um, I, I could be helpful with that, but that's not how I could best use my skill set. And I think a life coach would be a better um, fit in that situation. That makes sense. I, I would think that your training would be uh, to break down what's gone wrong in the past so then they can move forward with that knowledge and build their life. And a life coach is like, okay, let's set some goals and get you going in, in this direction. And I can see how both have value. Um, but if you have enough stuff in your past, just going forward with a lot of dysfunctions, probably going to be a bumpy road. Definitely. So I think someone has to clean it up. I, I agree. I, one of the things I, I have always had issues with is when people just blame their parents or their upbringing for everything. But at the same time, I, I battle with that because I think to myself at the same time, okay, if you had some horrifying parents, you're definitely at a disadvantage and you know, you, you can't just spend your life unforgiving and hateful, but at the same time, you definitely got a bad start. So how are you going to break this down? And do you get into uh, like the, once again, that Freudian idea that the, the, the mother is so important and what do we do about her? Um, do you, does that come up a lot? Are you, are you drawn to that as a way of digging out the past? Every single patient, I do a genogram and we start at zero. Um, Did you say a denogram? A, a, a genogram. So a genogram is. A genogram. Um, you, tell, I, tell me about that. Yeah, it's a full, it's kind of like a, I describe it as more um, complicated family tree, but it starts with you and then all your history of relationships, um, right. romantic. Then we go up to your parents, siblings, parents, talk about the relationship. Um, 
grandparents, if it's relevant, great grandparents, uh, really close friendships or important friendships in your life. So, you know, I start with that to get the full history. Um, and in that, usually I see relational patterns um, and, you know, how they persisted, how they changed. Sometimes those small T traumas will come up. Um, and small T meaning, it's interesting what you said there, um, you know, you know, horrific parents, sometimes, um, most of the time, I would actually say, parents don't have to be horrific to have caused some stuff um, for patients that they deal with on a regular basis. Um, so what I see a lot is parents who are simply emotionally unavailable. And so for that emotional deprivation schema, and I can talk more about schemas too, if you'd like, it's kind of just the blueprint or like the lens through which you see yourself in the world. Um, so it affects everything going forward, right? Because it's your lens. Um, you know, if you had a parent who just was really busy working all the time and they didn't have energy to notice when you were sad, then you learned, oh, okay, uh, my feelings must not matter too much. And you just learn to like shove that stuff down. But over time, trauma and these emotions get stored in the body, right? And then you see certain physical stuff come up, um, you know, so that's how that um, mind, I guess, body connection is really seen in my practice. There's a great book you might have read it called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, it can be yeah. kind of tricky, so <laughs> warning on that, but, um, you know, it's really how that, those things are stored and connected. And so, yeah, I, I, I think it's completely important with at least the patients I work with to start from ground zero and assess all of those relationships. Yeah, that, that I like the way you the way you do that because you're breaking down each relationship and looking for important things that maybe failed the person or like created that lens. Yeah, and exactly. I think to to get them to so when a person puts together that a series of people that are important and have done certain things, how do you get a person to then say, okay, I was I was never my parents were never emotionally available because they were too busy for me. I mean, how do you, how do you get that person to, how do you change that lens? I mean, is there a simple answer to that? Or is that years of, of, of talk therapy and counseling? So that's, um, kind of, that's kind of, I've, uh, and from mentors have learned and integrated and part of my doctoral work was actually creating a, an integrated intervention to do that. Um, Sorry, I didn't know if I got logged out for a second. Um, I kind of have like there a three. Yeah, something got funny. I, you're good now. Okay. Um, and so I always start with the genogram to kind of figure out what's going on there. And then I'll give them, assess their schemas. So the schemas, I'll figure out, okay, what schemas do you, were you set up for based on kind of how you were raised? Which ones do you have now? And then, okay, what created those? Let's talk about those. Why do you feel this way? You know, what did you notice? Why did you score it that way? Um, and sometimes, you know, you know, I know I've mentioned that emotional deprivation scheme a lot. That's the one I see mostly misscored um, because people, it's the trauma of what wasn't there. So people don't know what they didn't have, right? right? Right. So, you know, they'll be telling me something and I'll know probably didn't go they needed there. But as we're talking, I'll say, okay, well, did your parent, you know, when you were sad, get down on one knee, look at you and say, okay, hey, what's going on? Talk to me about it, right? And they're like, well, no. I was like, okay. So maybe let's make this number a little bit higher because that may be something that you should have. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's like, oh, got it. So then after we look at those schemas and identify what caused those blueprints or lenses, then typically I, if it's appropriate, I'll move into some of that IFS work. So these parts of you that might've separated off, you know, those earlier parts that hold, held all that sadness um, or, you know, from not having the need met or loneliness or whatever it might've been, you know, they'll have you know, some protectors. And sometimes that's um, a part of you that has extremely high expectations for yourself. And, you know, unless you've achieved 150%, you've failed and then you beat yourself up. So that part, that inner critic really likes to kind of keep you in line so that that, you know, more vulnerable part doesn't come out. So we got to kind of get a dialogue and understanding of these parts and make sure that those parts that are exiled or, um, you know, holding the trauma are in the room with us. When we then move into EMDR, which is um, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, 
and it's a um, it's a more efficient trauma treatment than you know like prolonged exposure or anything like that. And it's a neurologically based treatment um, where we kind of identify all these things that led to those schemas, and then we reprocess them. Um, so kind of changing the way they're stored in the brain so that hopefully your schemas actually change and therefore the way you interact with the world um, in a lot of different ways change because the lenses have changed. When you say schema, do you mean like sort of processing uh, belief? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like a set of beliefs about yeah. yourself or the world. Okay, okay. Um, I, I think it's you know, with the amount of anxiety I see in the world right now, and I'm not saying just the pandemic related stuff, but it just seems to be growing and growing this, this idea that people have anxiety. Is it something we're paying more attention to? Or do you think it's something that's actually increasing? In the 1950s, did people theoretically have anxiety? Did they ignore it? Were they raised so differently? Was there less knowledge? So there's less tension? Do we know too much? You know? I mean, what is it that's causing so I don't really get anxiety. It's not really how I'm wired up. So I'm fascinated by it. I'm surrounded by a lot of people that have anxiety. I think anxiety-ridden people are maybe drawn to me, um, which is nice. Um, I, I find them interesting and, and uh, actually quite stimulating to be around. But uh, where is it going? Where is it, where, where is it all coming from? Why does everybody seem to have this, at least this diagnosis? How real is it? Talk to me about anxiety. Uh, well, I say anxiety is kind of just a normal part of, you know, our humanity. Uh, it's there to say, so, like all emotions, emotions are information, right? We see them as like good or bad, but not none of them are good, bad, this, that, right? They're just telling us something. Um, so anxiety is there to say like, hey, um, <laughs> might not want to be doing that, or there's something there you really need to be paying attention to, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. it's got an important message and sometimes it's a little maladaptive, but the more we can listen to it, I think the better. I think it's probably a combination and, you know, I, I can't say for sure. I think it's a combination probably of we are becoming more aware of it. And it's, I'm so happy to see like uh, it, this mental health is becoming more normalized in our society and the stigma is starting to be reduced. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. super happy about that. Um, so there's probably a little bit of that, um, a little bit of, yeah, I mean, things are going, technology has made things so insanely fast that, you know, it's our, our physiology, I don't think has um, been, you know, uh, adapted, going, yeah, yeah. all that stuff quite yet. And um, there's also, you know, with uh, smartphones, like a lot of the time I see there's no boundaries, right? So boundaries keep us safe. So if we are afraid that, you know, if we put our phone down by 6 p.m. every day, that we're going to lose this business, right, then we're not going to set that boundary, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so there's that as aspect of it. And then societally, I think and there's a lot of different things we could go into discussion about how that has changed and expectations have changed. And but, but I, I think it's really a combination of all those things. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of things I know, like, uh, all of a sudden, in, in, but 15 years ago, I was in, in practice, and uh, everything was carpal tunnel. Mm -hmm. Everybody that came in with a hand problem had carpal tunnel. And I was always telling people, well, no, carpal tunnel is a very specific diagnosis and very specific findings. I don't like to just throw that out there because it's billable. Um, you have, you know, cervicalitis, you have, you know, uh, decarbene's disease. I mean, there's a whole bunch of conditions of the hand that are neurologically mm. nasty things that aren't carpal tunnel, but it was, it was sort of like a, 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 a new diagnosis, a newer diagnosis. And I think with all the keyboard work everyone was doing at that point, uh, we were getting more hand traumas and some of them were carpal tunnel and some of them weren't. So the question was, you know, uh, is this really happening? Are we really destroying our hands, creating carpal tunnel or you know, how many times is it our neck and do they relate? And sometimes it's both and that kind of thing. But I think with anxiety, like you're saying, I, I don't, I come from a very, I love evolutionary biology. I love anthropology because to me, when you put those together, they answer great questions. And I've said this on my podcast before, someone asked me about alkaline water. How good is alkaline water? And at the time, this is probably eight, maybe eight, 10 years ago, I didn't know. So I said, you know, I've heard of it. I'll get back to you. So I did a search on it and I didn't read about alkaline water from like companies that make alkaline water. 
I said, does alkaline water exist in nature? So I Googled that and everything like that. And it turns out in very pristine environments, alkaline water is found. Great. So it's a certain mineral composition that alkalizes the water. And that's that must be real then. Then the question is, how much do you drink? And you know, all that kind of stuff. You don't completely alkalize yourself and end up with some other terrible problem. So, uh, but that's what I do is I look into nature, you know, are, are, are running marathons a good idea, Dr. Mike? Well, who runs 26 miles to run away from a bear or to catch a bear if you're crazy enough or to do anything? No. Well, the answer to that is nobody in nature does that. Uh, the 26 miles came from the marathon to Athens, Greece, and then the guy died supposedly when he got there to deliver a message. Um, so you're going to need really good sneakers and a lot of water and electrolytes, and you won't die when you get there, especially if you train properly. So how valuable is marathon running? You know, sorry to all my marathon runner people that listen to this. You know, feel free to, you know, I, I climb Rocky Mountains. That's not real natural. It's a real, real uh, incredible task to do. But, you know, uh, let's put it into nature. So anxiety will keep you alive, um, but slowly kill you off and make your life miserable. So there's a balancing act is how I find, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not wired that way, but if, if I was in nature, maybe that would be a problem, you know, uh, oh, that's just a bear. Don't worry about it. I saw that bear before, you know, uh, taking it easy on the bear, you know, might end up uh, at the bottom of a, a messy pile there. So I think, I, I, I think it's interesting to say, you know, we have anxiety as a, a diagnosis, but we don't have I, I just see, it just seems so prevalent and almost like a crown of thorns sometimes. It just, I just think people, you know, I mean, and maybe it's a little bit over, overdiagnosed, overused, but I like that you say it's valuable. So people aren't like, I have anxiety, isn't this terrible? No, you have anxiety and it might be for a good reason. Let's maybe figure out what that reason is so we can bring it down. Let's solve that. That, that question, like, what are you concerned about? You know, it's, yeah, everything's crazy. Your whole life is really, you know, so uh, I think that's, that that's really, 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 really crucial, right? So, you know, I really, I like I said before, I like your style. You're, you are probably busy, I would think, right? I mean, they, they I, I looked up some stats about how many people need, you know, counseling and how many counselors there are. And it's not even close. So do you find your profession is in, in need of expansion? And if so, in what area? If somebody's interested in this, let's say they're watching this podcast and think, you know, I would love to talk to people about their issues, just like you discovered when you first decided to go in this direction. I thought that was cute. Now, I wish there was a job where I can talk. Um, if someone's doing that right now, listening to you, they think, hey, I'm just like her. Uh, I want to do that. Where does a person start? And where is it? Where is the void? Where, where is the need? You know, that's the old key to success. Find the need and fulfill it. Would they follow your path exactly? Or was there a, a shorter route? Well, what would you do? What would you tell someone to do that says, hey, I want to do something like you do? Um, yeah, I so there's definitely not one route. Um, definitely a bunch. And even like uh, so I went and got my master's in social work which I, you know, New York is kind of a social work state is what I heard, you know, when I chose, you know, that sort of that. Um, but you can go get your, um, you know, counseling degree. You could, one of my friends is an LMFT, so marriage and family therapist, um, you know, so there's a bunch of different type of mental health counseling degrees you can get, but you probably start with a master's degree. Um, and then you definitely don't have to go get your doctorate like I did, but um, more than welcome to, I think it's great. Um, and then, yeah, I would say all these states have, um, states, unfortunately, all have different requirements right now, but if we're just sticking with New York, um, you know, pick a place to work for a few years, get your hours, get your client contact. And the thing I would really encourage people to do is figure out like what population you really love working with, what diagnosis you love working with, what setting you like working with. So, you know, some people love working with, um, you know, like prenatal stuff. Some people love, uh, you know, get a KSAC, so it's a special, um, you know, kind of certification for um, substance use. I just happen to love complex trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And so I really just, I have taken a lot of different trainings, like specialized trainings, gotten certifications. Um, you know, I'm taking another training now. 
so you just dive into it. It's, it's a profession. So I think, um, you know, professional careers, you get to kind of figure out, uh, I gotta get my CEUs, right? So what am I interested? Well, let me like really explore this and take a curious approach to all of it. Um, that would be my best advice if someone is interested. And, you know, you could always, um, you know, call like UB or something like that and say, hey, can you tell me about your program? Um, you know, there's absolutely people who'd be open to talking with you about that and kind of exploring, is this a good fit for you? The other thing that I 100% recommend anyone do if they're interested in this is go, you know, get your own therapy. Um, you will be a better therapist um, if you do that. Yeah, we say that with chiropractors too. Like I love going for, you know, there's 140 styles of chiropractic. I have not experienced them all because some of them are very hard to find because they're really strange and, and not too many people practice them. But if I ever have the opportunity at seminars, I try to talk a chiropractor into, hey, do, do that technique on me. That's pretty bizarre. And some of them are so subtle and some of them are so forceful. It's really funny to, to see the wide range of techniques because people need different technique styles. And, and then it's the, then sometimes like you were talking about being, feeling safe, even in, in a chiropractic office, I have a friend of mine, he's been on the podcast. If you haven't seen him watch, it's Dr. Fred Clary. He's a chiropractor, a neurologist, and a power lifter. He's about 320 pounds of just, he's like a door walking in the room. And he's a very gentle and kind person. He's very sensitive. He's extremely well-read. Uh, like I say, he's got a, a neurology diplomat, teaches neurology in, in schools, uh, continuing education credits. But at first glance, you know, he really looks like some kind of superhero that fell out of the sky that's going to like do something crazy. So his, there are patients that, you know, look at him and go, there's no way he's working on me. There's no way. It's just, that man is too big. Uh, he twitches funny and he'll snap me in half. I, I can't do it. And then there's people that say, yeah, I need that guy because, you know, if he's using 10% of his strength, he, he probably has great control, which is really the truth and uh, that kind of thing. So in your work, I think, too, it's a fit. You mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that you sort of like have a, a session to see if, you know, if, if, if it's the right mix, if it's something that person has either personally that you think you can fix and the, the condition or the match. And I think I, I encourage people, if they've been to a therapist or a chiropractor, any professional, if it didn't work out, doesn't mean that whole profession's wrong for you. It means that that individual maybe read you wrong or doesn't have the skill set for you. They're amazing at something else, but they're not amazing at you. You're at that thing. You mentioned, you mentioned the complex trauma that that's your, that's your thing. What isn't your thing? What is something that you don't, you think that that person should go somewhere else? What do you stay? Is there anything you stay away from? Yeah, I would say um, I'm not, I mean, in general, um, you know, some of the more like psych psychotic symptoms, I'm not a good fit for something like that. Um, definitely. And you might, you know, go more inpatient, but then seek outpatient, you know, sustaining treatment for something like that. Um, okay. I would not be a good fit for that. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to treat anxiety, depression, but I feel like with, um, like, there's a lot of other practitioners that also treat that. So, mm -hmm you know, to make myself more available. Sometimes I'll say, you know, you know, I, I do work with a specific niche. So, you know, you need four weeks, um, you know, we can absolutely do that, but you might be better suited to somebody who, you know, you just want to kind of have more of a counseling relationship with versus more of a heavy therapeutic, let's dig into things. So um, I, I absolutely, I would never reject someone like that in my office at all. Um, but sometimes people want something a little bit lighter and that's fine too. Uh -huh. I, yeah. I will say too, I tend to be, um, sometimes I tell people like I am a fellow intellectualizer. So people who tend to over intellectualize or overanalyze, um, you know, we can kind of get on the same level. And I'm like, I know you don't think feelings matter, but, and I said the same thing too, but they do. So <laughs> let's start here. I understand you. Um, and we tend to be a good fit. Yeah. I can tell that about you. You have a depth in what you want to do. You want to get to the, the root of things. I, I think that's, that's important. I, I, and for me, I have that with certain patients. Our conversations are always deep and complicated and confusing at times. I'm like, okay, that's, that's amazing. I, I, I have a couple that I see, um, you know, basic back and neck problems, but the conversation we get into, I always tell, especially her, they're a married couple. I, I, I tell her, I'm like, every time I leave this room, my head is literally smoking and I have to take a sip of something before I go in the room with the next patient 
I normally don't have to. I can fly from one patient to another and just be ready for anybody in the room. But coming out of that room, like, wow, she just reinvented what femininity means. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'm going to have to digest this. I'm not ready to go in the next room yet. Um, and it's, yeah, for me, I'm similar to that. You know, I like to have a good time and goof around with my patients and, and people in general. Um, but it, I, I don't, I, I, I have never been in a conversation where I think this is getting too deep for me. I have to go home. You know, I, <laughs> the deeper and more personal it gets, I think it's, it's more interesting. And that's actually why I have this, this one question for you. And it really fits because my last question that I have in my head for you is a silly question. And I think sometimes silly questions can get you to think um, and you can turn into something pretty deep. I, I, many of us long to be better to the, at what we do in general to the point where we wish we were super, super powered. So I love asking people a few questions like, what's your favorite color is one of my favorite questions because it's so silly, but you really get some interesting answers. Mickey Rourke was someone who I'm always, if you know who that is, he's kind of an older actor. Um, he's been known for having multiple, multiple. Now, he, there's a man with complex trauma. If you listen to interviews with him, wow, uh, brutal life. And uh, they, they, they asked him one time, what's his favorite color? And he's such kind of a macho guy and, you know, Hollywood actor. And then he was a boxer, then went back to acting. He said, the last color a woman told me I look good in which is such a, exactly, it's such a macho, sexy answer that I was like, wow, that's why he's Mickey work and I'm not. Um, but if you had a superpower, if you were given one, what would it be? So I, it's, um, it's going to sound so like, me, but like truly it's, I, if I could like, like just put my hands over someone and just like heal them. Um, mm -hmm. I've thought about that so much. Like I wish I could just do that and yet um i know that i would then also be kind of robbing them the of the experience of having said i did this you know <laughs> what I mean? it's like i, yeah. I don't fix people i am with them on their path but you know they do that they do that you know right. i no credit i i will help i will guide but um you, i you did that and you get to take that with you that you now can trust yourself for the rest of your life that like it's just so empowering and i would not want to rob that so i, I don't know absolutely F fantastic answer and so true the reason why in my opinion we don't have superpowers is because they would just they would do just that they would take away someone's ability and change how we are supposed to get from point a to point b uh i think that's uh that is the kind of answer i'd expect from the little that i know you now um, because it's, <laughs> it, that's, that's deep and it's, it's very real. I, I don't think anybody really should be walking around with this idea that they are the science or they are this, or they are that an old time practitioner one time told me when someone comes to you and tells you as a chiropractor, what you just did was unbelievable. I can walk now. And they look at you like you're a God. Don't believe you're a God. And when someone tells you the last adjustment really hurt and you made me worse and I don't like chiropractic and I don't think I'm coming back and I don't know what's wrong with you, don't think you're a bum. You didn't invent chiropractic. You're just doing your best at it and learn both. Each, each should be a learning experience. Anytime someone talks to me in either of those fashions, I correct them and say, okay, um, your body healed. I directed it. It was ready. And I'm good enough to foster that, re that reaction, but I'm not any better than that. Your body had to do it. And if someone thinks, okay, I, I, that, that last adjustment wasn't great. Noel, your body is that stiff. Um, your diet is that bad potentially, um, or your body isn't ready to heal because of now I can say complex trauma to them. Um, because of the amount of emotional tension in your body was how I would normally say it. Right. Um, and let's, and I'd still want to encourage them to continue with me and I would maybe change technique styles, go a little slower. Cause that's maybe a, I demanded too much out of a body that wasn't ready to go from point A to point B. I've maybe tried to bring it to point C because, uh, you know, people are a bit impatient as well as I can be to try to get somebody to feel better in, in the limited time that we sometimes have with our clientele. So, well, Dr. Kelsey Bennett, thank you 
for coming on my show. I appreciate it. Um, very enlightening. I, I appreciate all that you've had to offer today. I would love to, I'm going to probably send you a lot of people. Hopefully we have some space for them. <laughs> because as we're talking, I, you know, my patients over the years, are <clears throat> a lot of them just keep popping in my head that I think would match you perfectly. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. You're passionate about what you're doing. Congratulations on becoming a doctor. Like you said, that wasn't necessary, but I, you know, it's such a, it's, it's, I think having credentials for some of your clientele is important. You know, when people find out that my education parallels and often exceeds that of a medical doctor, that they, they like that. I don't tell them that they tend to, well, I probably haven't. It's not that I never told anybody that I must admit, but I don't say it a lot. Um, but it, you know, but people will ask and sometimes they'll look it up and that helps people say, okay, this person tried hard at least. So went to school a long time, read a lot of material. Um, and I think that what people want is that you care and that you try hard and that you're there for them. And, uh, it means something to be good at what you do. And I think education is one of those things for all the times that you know, we talk about student debt relief right now in the news and, um, it, and at the same time, you know, many people not even promoting going to college. There's, you know, pretty wealthy people that have run this world that are like, college is fun, but, you know, you don't need it. Um, you know, ignorance isn't uh, isn't the answer to anything, in my opinion. And I don't say that about a lot of things, but knowing things, reading things and, you know, looking at does it does it fit you? Does it make sense? And keep going. Keep reading. You know, I, I think half the problems in this in this world are because people don't read books. You buy a book and read it for God's sakes. I don't know what's wrong with people, right? <laughs> uh, it's not all about 30 seconds of a news clip, right? It's going to be uh, spend spend a few days reading a couple of good books. Well, thanks again for coming on. We'll, we'll talk soon, and uh, maybe we'll have you on the show again. I'll dream up some other crazy questions for you, and we'll have a good time. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having thanks, me. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>